The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for February 4th, 2022. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Uh, We got a a, a great episode for you. I'm going to go ahead and say a great episode for you. Uh, Number one, there's there's some weighty, thoughty news, okay? I'm going to do an explainer. I'm going to do a breakdown And then we're going to weigh one of the most complex and heartbreaking questions of modern society. That's what I'm promising to you in this episode of the program. Okay, so so we are we are we are doing a good episode. We're doing a good Friday episode for you. First things first, I'm going to do something that I don't normally like to do, and that's pay attention to Canada. Indeed, unless they are playing hockey, I usually do not cast my eyes northward very often. And sometimes they get all fussy or they elect a prime minister or, you know, they have a comedian that is on SNL and I'll doff my cap to the great white North. But in general, they don't usually, you know, register on the Richter scales, so to speak. But I did it. I did a deep dive into this freedom convoy the Canadian truckers that are currently snarling traffic in their capital city of Ottawa. What is it? What do they want? Are they as bad as some of their opponents say they are? And are they really, truly just a front for the worst instincts in the history of man? We will talk about that. Also, a massive, massive media story Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN and Turner Sports, walking away from both the latest and I dare say biggest name to fall in the wake of the collapse of the House Cuomo. What that means and as it relates to CNN, I will make the case that I believe they will, by the end of the year, be sold. And not to Discovery, like like there's being, you know, moved, they're being moved from AT&T to Discovery. No, 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 no. I believe they will be sold from Discovery. To whom? You'll have to listen. And we will have Andrew Heaton. Uh, He just did two episodes, great episodes, on his podcast, The Political Orphanage, about homelessness. Something that is hotly debated, touches on some of the most raw nerves in our society, and yet we are often short on agreement on what we should do, how we should help, and it 
just continues to leave a very ugly, painful problem there for everybody to see. It is a shame of humanity, and we are going to talk about it in a way that only Heaton knows how. But till then, Bird first. What the hell is the Freedom Convoy? Well, let's start at the beginning here. The main protest stems from a reclassification of the vaccine mandate from Canada in mid-January. Previously, Canadian truckers crossing into the United States could come back into Canada regardless of vaccine status. But on January 15th, unvaccinated truckers would have to take both a COVID test and quarantine. This is because, due to the vaccine mandates that were put in, they would no longer be exempt under essential worker status. That vaccine mandate was put in last November. By the way, the United States has a similar restriction for unvaccinated truckers coming into the country. So at the time that this first came into focus, I was looking back for news stories about it. It was largely understood to be an international trade issue. Both the American and Canadian trucker associations called for politicians in Washington and Ottawa to solve this issue. For Canada, between 10 and 20% or between 12 and 22,000 Canadian truckers remain unvaccinated and would essentially be delayed or ruled out of the workforce according to the Canadian Trucker Association estimates at the time. So why do we care? Because of inflation. Look, it has become a bigger and bigger conversation because inflation has risen. Everybody understands that part of it is due to supply chain disruptions. In Canada, the I word hit an 18-year high in November, spurring the Bank of Canada to signal that it would likely raise interest rates this spring. So what do you, I mean, come on. You're listening to me right now. Justin, come on. What is this? Uh, an international logistics story? Boring. What is this? The Economist podcast? You're here for the sizzle. You're here for the crazy. You're here for the bizarre. Well, let's take this legit economic issue. Let's dip it in culture war and drizzle it with line-in-the-sand rabble-rousing. I give you the Freedom Convoy 2022! In the annals of human history, a time comes but rarely when a nation awakes to freedom, to liberty, to truth, and to a new beginning. This is such a time. You, the truckers of Canada, have brought hope back to a nation languishing in the long night. That is a video posted to the official website of the group organizing a convoy of truckers that hoped and did snarl traffic around Ottawa in a bid not only to repeal the vaccine mandates for truckers, but also to end all federal vaccine mandates. As you can hear, 
The goal of this is not to simply rectify a logistical headache affecting 12 to 22,000 truckers, but to awaken the sleeping lion of Canada and the yoke of its feckless tyrants might lay broken before it. The website that organized this collective action for truckers to gridlock downtown traffic while leaving routes open for emergency vehicles. By the way, I'm just going to make a quick personal note on my own philosophy when it comes to these kinds of disruptive protests. I, I generally don't think that traffic blockades sway people to your side. I don't know anybody who has sat in bumper-to-bumper traffic when they were late for something and then found out why they were sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic and said, well, you want to know what? I think they have a point. I thought this way for the Black Lives Matter protests that disrupted freeway traffic in 2020. I tend to think about this now, but that's my own philosophical opinion. Take it for what you will. Back to the story. How has the Canadian government responded to these protests as they began this week. I know you're wondering about what you saw in our capital city this weekend. As my friend Erwin Kotler said on Saturday, freedom of expression, assembly and association are cornerstones of democracy, but Nazi symbolism, racist imagery and desecration of war memorials are not. It is an insult to memory and truth. Wait. What? Nazis? The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? How did they get involved with all this? Well, when the truckers got to the capital city of Canada, some folks got a little rowdy. They were reportedly dancing on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. A Confederate uh, and Nazi symbols were amongst those that were gathering to protest and waving flags. And so we have the age-old conversation around movements. Who gets to define who you are? The organizers of the protest? The people protesting? The opponents of the protest? Well, according to Canada Unity, the organization directing the convoy, the people who did those things danced on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, brought Nazi flags, Confederate flags. Well, they're bad apples. And even in the moment, they were singled out by fellow protesters and driven out. But according to Justin Trudeau and like-minded Canadians, those folks represented the true nature of these protests. Face facts, people. These are only retrograde reactionaries glomming onto another issue so they can spread their true message of prejudice and hate. Now, if you believe that the convoy's motivations are pure, I do think that there is a reasonable slice to say that the vaccine mandate for truckers specifically feels like a bit of an overreach to me. After all, the very definition of a trucker is being isolated. In fact, it's why they get paid money, because they're by, they're by themselves for hours and hours, if not days at a time. If you were going to skimp on one element of society, 
when it came to vaccine mandates, I think truckers might make the most sense. But that is only part of the reason that mandates exist. Another is to attempt to boost the rate of vaccination by forcing a tough choice on somebody who is reluctant. Specifically, get the shot or have your career impeded or ended. And dear listener, your belief on how effective of a motivating factor that decision is in the mind specifically of the hesitant or opposed likely guides how in favor or not in favor of mandates you are. Then again, if you believe that this entire mandate issue is a farcical cover for a rolling Great White North Klan rally, then this is simply an issue that needs to run its course and go away. Now, how fast that will happen is up to debate. The Ottawa convoy inspired another convoy. This one on the southern border border of Alberta, which has blocked access to the United States on one of its busiest, uh, busiest routes, no doubt. This one seems to be a little bit more direct and a little less symbolic. Will it be the only spinoff? How long will the Ottawa protests go? Will Trudeau actually have to address, at the very least, the stated goals of Canada United, if not the protesters themselves? Will he do it via CB radio? You know, we'll have to wait and see, eh? We have news now to report involving our network. CNN President Jeff Zucker has just resigned after disclosing a consensual relationship with a colleague. Jeff has led our company, led CNN for the last nine years. Big news in the world of media this week as Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN for the past nine years, resigned from his position. His fall is the latest aftershock of the thundering collapse of the House of Cuomo. So... There are a lot of angles to look at this from, but but since we're a political podcast, let's focus on what CNN's biggest effect on our world is. From 2015 on, CNN's brand under Zucker was opposition to Donald Trump and their self-styled branding as the being the protector of objective truth. Now, for whatever your opinion of that is, there's no denying that, especially through the election, it was very successful. They became the go-to for breaking news. The centering of minuscule political stories over other elements of national and world news proved to be what the audience wanted. 48 hours of coverage about an unsourced report saying that Trump used the phrase "asshole countries. Yes, please. By all accounts, Zucker was at the helm of these decisions. Some say he was downright Roger Ailesian when it came to his hands-on management, controlling talent, chirons, and more. Will the new CNN, under new leadership, have the same mindset? Well, there's a lot that goes into that. And to understand it, we have to understand what CNN is. CNN is, for now, although not for long, a part of AT&T. That will in all likelihood change as soon as this spring when AT&T officially unwinds its merger with Time Warner, the CNN parent company, and spins it off into a new company controlled by Discovery. 
Now, I know this is complicated, but you just have to know that Time Warner and Discovery are going to be one company and that Discovery is going to be the one running things. Separately, CNN is facing the same issue that a lot of one-time cable channel behemoths are staring down, dwindling cable revenue as more and more customers cut the cord. Say what you will about CNN's ratings, especially since the end of the election. The guy who lost the election certainly talks about it a lot. But the reality of cable television economics is that it doesn't matter how many people at any given time are watching the network. Ads on 24-hour networks on cable are a fraction of the bottom line. What really matters is how many subscribers to any given cable or satellite platform there are. Because CNN gets paid per subscriber each month, regardless of whether or not they are watching CNN. This is how cable economics works. But if there are less people subscribing to cable and satellite, then they get less revenue. And that is exactly what's happening. What is the solution? Stream or Die. New York, CNN Business, CNN is hiring hundreds of people and developing dozens of programs for a subscription streaming service that will launch early next year. Like ESPN, Fox News, and MSNBC, CNN is launching a digital-only subscription platform. In the near term, they hope to offset losses from cable subs by creating a direct financial relationship with its audience. You know, kind of like Patreon. Ding! But in the future, possibly far future, CNN Plus could simply become CNN as its audience becomes more savvy to online-only media and will probably have easier ways to manage our myriad online subscriptions in something like what Apple has with Apple TV, where you can, you know, have your everything but Netflix. It's just like one little thing and it'll show you stuff. Anyway, it's funny I mentioned Apple TV. Because I got a big prediction for you. I believe that beyond the Time Warner Discovery merger, CNN will get sold. So even beyond it leaving AT&T, I believe it's going to get sold out of the house of Time Warner Discovery. Now, this is not a crazy idea. Investors first floated the concept when the merger was announced. The question that Discovery has to ask itself is, where does a news division, mostly a live news division, fit? I mean, the biggest things that they have in their quiver are recorded, filmed content, reality shows, HBO, and the like. Meanwhile. On the horizon are some big money players that might just want to buy their way into credibility that they do not have right now, namely Apple and Amazon. Now, a reminder that Jeff Zucker was not only the head of CNN. He was also the head of Turner Sports. Amazon wants to get into sports in a big way. 
they're going to be getting the exclusive rights to Thursday night football games starting this upcoming season. And along with the uh, along with it, they're going to bring a roster of famous football faces and voices. People that you've been seeing on broadcast television for years are going to leave those jobs and go to work for Amazon. So if they're building up a sports division, maybe buying Turner Sports, which would immediately give them access to the NBA and NHL, who are currently contracted to show those games, those leagues games right now, would be a smart move. And with it, they could bring news credibility with CNN. Apple, on the other hand, already has a news app with a subscription. The problem is that they're at the mercy of making deals with existing news brands. They've got to go to these magazines. They got to go to these newspapers and they got to say, hey, can we run your stuff? And then those content creators get to set their own prices. Now that they've done this for a while and look, Apple's not hurting for money. But maybe they now have enough data to say, well, you want to know what really moves the needle for us? Immediate breaking news. The kind of news that we can deliver to everybody's desktop, phone, watch, and iPad, the likes of which nobody else has a similar footprint. All we need is our own engine. We need CNN. The thing about either of these ideas is that the online companies wouldn't care about CNN's dwindling cable revenue, which is going to be a problem for a lot of properties that Discovery is going to have to deal with. Why are they going to be nervously watching CNN's uh, uh, revenue when it comes to cable when they're already going to be watching Discovery's and HBO's? Maybe they can just get the money now, get the headache of having a news division off their books, and focus on what they do the best. Meanwhile, these digital behemoths don't give a rat's ass and would only want CNN for what it really is, a content factory that they can use as a value add for their massive customer base. Food for thought. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank everybody for being a part of uh, our listenership. We are gearing up for a big midterms year. Getting ready to book my flights. I think I'm definitely going to Pennsylvania. Well, the only place that I will be going is wherever you guys allow me to. Uh, If you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, then you are going to support the show. Get two bonus podcasts, the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition that's available to you first thing Monday morning where I break down the Sunday shows. The late edition, where all of the latest news is reacted to on Thursday because that's the latest that I do a podcast during the week. I record this show on Wednesday. Friends, it's the lifeblood of this show. And I greatly appreciate your support. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com.
our guest today is no stranger to the program. He is the host of The Political Orphanage, where he has, very characteristic for him, just done a big, thoughtful, deep dive into the concept of homelessness. He will talk about that research, and uh, we will bandy about some of the uh, most fascinating elements of one of our most pernicious and ugly problems. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Heaton. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello. Uh, Mr. Heaton, you have just completed how many episodes on this uh, I did a, subject I did of a homelessness? two-parter on it. A there two-parter. Was a whole fortnight dedicated to homelessness. And you've been working on this for... About a year. A yeah. while. I mean, now. I wasn't working on it every day for a year, but it it it, it turns out, Justin, yeah. that homelessness is actually really complex. <laughs> like, it's not... I had kind of thought going into it, it was going to be like, oh, just give every... You know, just pass out psychotic medication. That'll take care of that. I thought there would be some kind of silver bullet. And it, it turns yeah. out homelessness is really... A bunch of things. It's like dozens and dozens of failing systems that when they interlock produce homelessness. So it took me a really long time to do it. Um, so yeah, it's been about a year. And then, and then I, I invested uh, not just my own time researching the policy side of it, but um, I got inspired after I talked to Alan Graham, who I interviewed last week, who runs Community First here in Austin. And I started volunteering at a bridge, um, underneath the bridge in Tulsa when I was living there, where, yeah. where we were uh, passing out hamburgers and doing various things there, partly because I wanted to volunteer, but also because I was genuinely curious as to like, I, I kind of want to get a firsthand view of this. So it was a really involved episode. I don't know that I've done anything that was quite that involved. When we have kind of public conversations about homelessness, it seems to often fall into a few different buckets. Mm -hmm. uh, economic. Yeah. And, and let's include in there the idea that the, the system for which the capitalist system for which we, we live in uh, incentivizes homelessness on, on some level. Okay. Uh, drugs, uh -huh. drug addiction, uh, or, or addiction in general uh, uh, leads people to very, very dark places. Oftentimes those very dark places are away from friends and family and yeah. on the streets. Uh, and then as you mentioned before, maybe, uh, uh, you know, part of the addiction thing, but just mental, mental instability. Health, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just people for whom uh, uh, are, are not are fitting into society. And regardless of whether or not they are medicating on any level, this is just, a a a curse for them, man. You you outline that stuff really well. I should have talked to you before I did all this. <laughs> well, this is just, this Honestly, is how yeah, this is how we this is how we talk about. Yeah, it. yeah. is yeah. there? Am I missing anything, or are any any of those three overblown? No, like, I, I think that those are right. Like if if I were making a if I were making a pie chart of homelessness based on the reading that I've done, yeah, I, I would say a, a quarter of it is probably severe mental health issues. Okay, um, and and that's based on. Not not anecdotal data, but rather there there appear to be solid correlations between the amount of criminalization and homelessness that arose after the deinstitutionalization of sanitariums in the 70s and 80s. There, there seems to be a correlation there that you can pretty well track with with mental health. That's only a quarter. Right. So um, I think you probably could alleviate a lot of mental health. or Actually, you, you could alleviate a lot of homelessness and specifically chronic homelessness by having better, uh, better mental health resources. But that's a quarter. I would say about half of it is economic. Okay. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean that um, uh, about half of it, I think, is 
people that are otherwise functional that are getting pushed into it. And, and that's one of the other things that makes it kind of a slippery subject is like I mentioned chronic homelessness a moment ago. There's a difference between homelessness and chronic homelessness. When we say homeless, you immediately picture the guy in a sleeping bag on a bench or, yeah. or sleeping underneath uh, 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 an overpass. Statistically, most people that are homeless are, are not chronically homeless. They're, they're homeless in transition through a variety of different circumstances. So it could be a situation where I'm homeless, but I'm staying on your couch for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, I've met a lot of people that lived out of their car for a little while. And so it's not like it's not really a binary state. There's a lot of gray room there before you're you know living face down on the on the asphalt. For a lot, for most people, I think, because most people are transitionally homeless, they're not kind of, they're not doomed to it through, through some external circumstance they can't control. That to me, I think could be greatly alleviated by economics. And that means basically just making affordable housing. Uh, And, and, and when I say affordable housing, I I don't mean capital A affordable housing where we're going to build it necessarily. What I mean is just getting housing prices and rental prices lower, whatever, whatever means by which you're doing that, that allows people to stay home. Well, let me, let me drill down on on that specifically on homelessness versus chronic homelessness. And then the the last quarter, by the way, miscellaneous, a bunch of different things. Okay. Yeah. Well, here we'll get into that in a second. Uh, Chronic homelessness versus just transitionally homelessness. Where is the line of being homeless? Like, are you going to a homeless shelter? Are you just crashing at your friend's house? It's like, I I, I feel like there's, there's probably a a distinction that I am missing between like, my girlfriend kicked me out. I got to find a new place to live. Can I sleep at your place for yeah. a while versus I I am, have nowhere else to right. go? Uh, great question. It, it's also one that uh, makes intergovernmental comparison infuriating. Because okay. that's originally what I wanted to do was, can we steal some shit from the Scandinavians? Yeah. Like, you know, what, what, what are they doing? They don't seem to. Now, granted, Scandinavia, you're basically talking about the population of Vermont with a, a monoculture uh, that's affluent. So it's a different circumstance. Clearly a one-to-one comparison to the United yes, States. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it does become really difficult because like Japan has very low um, uh, homelessness rates as well. Uh, but then the more I, I dug into it, every country uses different definitions and terms to explain what homelessness is. So like Japan, I believe, claims to have zero homeless people. Okay. And by that, they mean there are no people on the streets. That's what they mean by that. Whereas New Zealand... Being, I don't know, man. I've, I've been to Golden Guy in the wee hours, and I've yes. seen a few salarymen uh, uh, plastering their ass yeah. uh, between I, the stalls. I'm not sure that I buy that one either. Uh, the uh, New Zealand, conversely, has like a much more touchy feely. Like, uh, are are you? Do you not know where you're going to sleep for three days in a row, or something like that? So, like, per <laughs> they've got a three strikes rule. It's, yeah, it's like per per capita. New Zealand has more homeless people than the United States does. But again, they're using a a much more broad term than we are. Um, I think if we were going to use a term, it would probably be that set by the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development. I don't remember what their criteria is, but I I think chronic homelessness, I believe, is six months of being homeless. That's that's chronic homelessness. And then after that, uh, your your mileage may vary. I mean, like I got fired and stayed at at Brian Brushwood's place for five months. You would not have categorized yourself as homeless. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have said I was homeless that's why that's why i wondered if if maybe part of it is like okay are you accepting homelessness assistance like like if are you going to a food bank are mm-hmm. you going to a soup kitchen or something right. like that and so that might not be a situation where it's like okay you you have a car you can live right. it under a roof of some kind 
uh, uh, but you are, you are, uh, uh, and I don't say that in any kind of judgment way, but more just to understand, right? Like what, There's, what is, what is yeah. the shape of the problem? Cause I think that's, that's the other part about this is that it's like, we just, it's so ugly. The problem, it is something that touches, mm. I think for Americans specifically, like this very, like uh, a shameful kind of urge of like, like especially in some of our biggest, richest glitter glittering cities uh, to have them to have people in such squalor and pain that we tend to, I think not understand the problem because it almost immediately becomes an overwhelming emotional splinter in your brain. A hundred percent. I think you're absolutely right about that. I I think that that's part of the reason I I don't really encounter this logic anymore, but I remember hearing this a lot when I was a kid where you, as a child, I would bring up homelessness and somebody would go, you know, I saw an ABC special where they followed a guy around and he made more money panhandling than he did, uh, you know, with honest labor or, yeah. you know, they, they like doing it. If you actually talk to them, they prefer it. And, and like, I, I've found that to decline. Maybe it's self-selection, but I think the reason that that resonated with people is that at least has a kind of karmic framework you can plug into if that's your worldview of yeah. you, you, you are lazy, therefore you're homeless or you, you opted. There are some people that opt to be homeless. Um, you opted to do this. Therefore, I don't really need to worry about this. Whereas if you're like, no, 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 like the, like truly, if we had one public safety net thing, like if we could only pick one thing, I would say no one has to sleep in a dumpster. Like that would yes. be my top thing yes. for a public safety net. And that raises some real questions of how are, how are we one of the most affluent dynamic societies in the history of mankind, a, a country that spent $8 billion on dog costumes in yeah. 2020, whatever. How are we, how do we, how am I stepping over a prone human being who is abjectly suffering on a street? I, I, that happens. And I think the other thing that happens that um, is, is disturbing. Uh, both of those are disturbing, but I, I think what, what's really commonplace for kind of everybody, regardless of political orientation is this impulse to, I don't want to see this anymore. Not, I want to fix it. I just don't want to see it. And, and that's one of the big problems that, that I encountered researching this topic is when you get down to the granular level and you get to the municipal level, like I, I realize we live in the red team versus blue team psychodrama yeah. and everything. At the local level, that really disappears. Um, pretty much every city is blue. Um, so like they're usually run by Democrats. And I'm not saying that because Democrats suck or anything like that. I'm, I'm just saying like at the municipal level, we're not fighting anymore about um, egalitarianism versus equality of opportunity. We're, yeah. we're fighting about zoning. Yeah. We're fighting about uh, property where, where, rules. Where, yeah. Where does the McDonald's go? Yes. Can I build a theme park next to the exactly. school? Like, yeah. And and for the most part, that's something Republicans and Democrats tend to be kind of lockstep on. Uh, and and if you're if you're listening at home and you're shaking your head right now and going, no, I'm a Republican, I'm against that. Really? Like if 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 they decide to put in a homeless shelter uh, like three doors down from you, you're going to fight that. Most people do. And, and that ends up becoming a really big deal. And, and uh, like here in Austin, you and I moved in after um, the whole thing with the, the camping ban and all of that. So I, I didn't really get to see all of that firsthand. But oh, no, I no we, I, oh, we were, were here before. Here oh, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was a marked difference. Yeah. It was it was, uh, uh, you know, I, I go on a, a walk up Manchac. And when you go under the highway like that overpass was its own 
little village. Yeah. Like there, they, we, there were stalls. Right. There were, there were, you it was know, like Hooverville. It yeah, was, it like was a a Hooverville. Town, yeah. And like that, all of a sudden it was gone. Now there are, you know, it seems like there is a, a large congregant of homeless folks now kind of in the woods, yes. which is apparently where they were before. Right. Uh, and that was a situation where I don't know what the line is between. I don't want to see it, which I think we can understand to be on whatever on the scale of like selfish to shame based uh, or like what is the role of the city government to protect public spaces? Right. And, and those are valid like, questions. Like, I think um, that, that was that was the most sympathetic. Like, yeah. I think that I, I, I could see is like, hey, look, let's understand that we should do something about homelessness. Right. Also, I don't think that that needs to be in direct conflict right. with the government should protect spaces that sure. are for everybody, or, which is part of why you are paying a higher cost of living to uh, live in a city. I, I don't own a home in Austin because it's so expensive. Someday I hope to one to day embezzle enough money to do that. If if I do successfully embezzle money and buy a house, I totally get why you would be concerned about the biggest asset you've ever purchased in your life declining in value <laughs> because yes. there's a homeless like that. That's a legitimate concern. You work hard and, and all of a sudden your 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 nest egg declines 20 percent. And I'd add, I think a bigger one is um, I don't have children. I'm of the age where it'd be awesome if a teenager wandered up, turned out to be my son now. Like, that'd be sure. great. I'm rooting for that. Yeah. Come on, Cedric. Uh, <laughs> but I, I don't have any acknowledged children. If I did, I suspect that that would be a much bigger concern for me yeah. of homeless people across the street and just in a theoretical context. So it's not like the people that are worried about zoning and just want them to go away are are doing it out of mean spiritedness. I do think there's an understandable defensiveness there. Like one of my friends that lives here in Austin, who's not a conservative or libertarian by any stretch, like felt like she was unsafe entering her home and leaving her home. And that is, I think, a legitimate province of government. There was, there was uh, uh, people in my life for whom were voting against, I forget what the exact dynamics of it was, but like the, the reimposition of the camping ban, which, which made people leave or which gave the right of the city and the, and the cops to move homeless people out of public spaces. Uh, that they did not vote for it. So they were voting for the homeless people to be able to stay where they were, uh, but were hoping it lost. Interesting. Because it became a red versus blue, like, Man. oh, the conservatives are pushing it. Large, some of it was the group that was pushing it, like Save Off to Austin Now. Uh, but yeah, it gets into a, a lot, a lot of stuff. It is, and and, the, and the, the only, the, the, the thing that I finally came to, because that is complicated, like, because you, yeah. you, you're wanting to, we don't want people living in the woods and shanty towns. We also can't let them live in the middle of the street. Like, yeah. like there's just not possible, right? You can't like if they started hanging out in literally the middle of the road, we'd go, well, you can't do that. Right. So um, it is complicated. The, the, the position I came to was regardless of how we're going to handle that. If all you're doing is dispersing people, if, if you have no actual solution in place, you have no way to attempt to alleviate this problem or point it towards a positive trajectory. All you're doing is saying, I don't want to look at this. I think that's inhumane. And I think that was part of, I think, the argument initially for rescinding the camping ban was almost an accelerationist philosophy that it's like, if we allow this problem to be uglier uh -huh. and more visible, then people will do something about it. They didn't. Yeah. I don't know. It's something of a gamble, to be honest with you. Yeah. That's not where my mind would have gone and tried to uh, fix it. 
Can I, can I tell you my pitch? Go. Um, so, and then, and then I want to circle back to drugs because yeah. I, 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 I think it, it was interesting that you put drugs in the, in the, in the et cetera category. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll circle back to that. I'd say like, um, so first of all, I, I would, and, and I, I'm one of the, um, tiny government, boutique government, free market guys that comes on your show yeah. regularly. So for people that are unclear where I'm coming from, um, I, I am first and foremost just trying to solve this problem. I'm not trying to defend Republican, libertarian or democratic policies. I'm just trying to figure out what works. But my orientation is one of a light touch and a non-interventionist neutral referee government. So that being said, yeah, uh, I do think that we need to expand the amount of funding that we have for mental health services, particularly for people that are poor and can't afford it. Um, I would also add that we need to be, I think, rebuilding sanitariums and making sure that they're humane because that's the reason they got unplugged. But there are there are people on the streets that um, are not capable of getting up on their feet because they are literally drenched. And I think for folks like that, um, if I were in their place, I would want to be institutionalized rather than literally crapping myself and and eating out of dumpsters and things. Right. So I would expand mental health services. I would expand funding for social workers. I think that they're really useful. I think there's lots and lots of public and private programs available to people, but it's myriad and it's complex and confusing. And I'm a fairly well-educated guy and I have difficulty navigating all of that. I think if you're a low information individual or um, uh, are not super educated on that, it can be very difficult for you to be aware of those things that are available to you as an on-ramp. So I would increase funding for that. And then the thing I would do on the municipal level um, that's, I think, opposed to the folks that wanted to just make the situation untenable so we would do something is I would make a fiscally conservative pitch for dedicated chronic homeless housing. And I would, this is what I would say. Um, homeless people are real expensive for a city. Yeah. They are real expensive because even though you're thinking on the top of your head, well, I don't want to spend money on uh, a shelter or I don't want to spend money on uh, the, the, the city to buy a, a dormitory building for homeless or anything. Okay. But the city is going to spend money on police, jail, emergency rooms to the tune of around like, Somewhere between thirty and one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year uh, for chronic homeless people. I don't remember the numbers specifically, but here in Austin, I want to say like the top ten percent of chronically homeless people run about one hundred thousand dollars a year in terms of taxpayer expenditure. So I would go from just a fiscal standpoint. What would make sense is figure out what the chronic homelessness amount is. Probably about two thousand people here in Austin, because again, a lot of them are transitional. Build about that many units, and then. Plug people into that, into the housing, um, get them social, uh, get them social workers, get them mental health services and that kind of thing. Hopefully, most of them can transition out. Some of them won't, but it's still better to keep them in there and it's cheaper to keep them in there than it is to just have them on the streets until they get arrested. So here was my question when it came to because we saw a lot of that both in California before we left and here where the city was buying motels yeah. and stuff like that and, and putting homeless people there. And I think that was partly the idea. Mm -hmm. The question that I always had, and this gets me back into my drugs and alcohol question is that whether or not they are addicted to the point that that's why they are on the street, mm -hmm. there is a reality, at least from my understanding of the problem that drug use and alcohol use is rampant because it sucks to be homeless yeah, and I it's would, better to be high or drunk. I would assume so. Yeah. So what are the rules for places like that? If you are trying to transition people, like, are you keeping them clean? Is that yeah. a requirement for doing it? Yeah. Is that 
does that automatically cut the amount of people who are willing? Because not everybody who is at their lowest point is ready to, you know, uh, uh, make a, a commitment to kind of change their life in that chemical sort of way. Right. And this is something that I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with, you're familiar with because we've both been around addiction. Yeah. Like it, it it's not a logical thing. It, it is, it is a, an emotional thing. It is something that, that is, is tied to a lot of different elements of our human brain. Uh, and, and I just, I wonder, it's like, okay, well, let's say you, you build those 2000 houses. Is it better to get more people in, get closer to that 2000 occupancy of people that will take help, but allow them their vices as they transition? Or do you get maybe a quarter or, or less of the people in, you know, under that cap, but you are making an honest to goodness effort to try and break habits if they are indeed on drugs or alcohol. That is a great question. And probably the hardest one, which is why I didn't focus on that as much because I felt, I felt much more comfortable talking about how these zoning laws are making prices more expensive for houses. That's, that's something that is much more logical, mathematical. It's, it's a market mechanism. Um, Addiction, as you point out, is sticky and unlogical. And I don't know that there is a, I don't know that there can be a clear cut policy on that that could, could rectify it Um, in the same way that like we can go, all right, if we're going to, if we're going to drop $2 billion on sugar subsidies, we can logically infer that the price is going to decline, whatever the thing is, right? Addiction doesn't work in tonnage. It's not fungible. It's not like, well, if we just increase federal resources for addiction, like there there are plenty of very wealthy, successful people who are still falling down drunk alcoholics that don't want to be, that can't get out of it. So it's not a one-to-one ratio of money for that, right? Um, In terms of that give or take relationship between yes, we want them off the streets. We don't want them getting in trouble, but also are we just funding people to do these bad things? Yeah. Alternately, I mean, a, are we digging their own grave for them by, by um, allowing them to keep, keep doing this? B, are we creating a, a festering sore that is going to exacerbate this? Those are very good questions. Um, the only, have you, have you, have you seen the wire? No. So season three, I believe there is like one of the greatest plot lines of all time that, that you should, you should, you should check it. Hey, you should watch the wire. Uh, but the, I, I, I oh, yeah. Yeah. Under threat of like stats of, uh, you know, getting drug arrests down or, or, or whatever uh, the cops decide or one cop decides that he's going to effectively legalize drugs on three city blocks. And immediately the benefits are seen throughout the city. Now, all of a sudden, drug dealers are not every block. No, now all of a sudden arrests are down. The city's better. Everything's great until the press finds out that there are three blocks of hell of of, and it is just the worst of the mm-hmm. worst mm-hmm. is now uh, 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 piled on top of it. And it, it's always made me wonder. It's like, well, who's the good guy there? Yeah. Is and, the and- good guy the one who legalized drugs? Is the good guy the one who made a bunch of the citizens happier and safer or is the good, is, is he the bad guy? Because he literally opened a port, a portal to hell where yeah. the most vulnerable were falling in. And, and I mean, that's one of the critiques of projects as well is that projects basically became vertical slums yeah. where, where all of these same problems were, were not just uh, concentrated, but became a, a catalyzing effect. Um, so those, those are things I like 
that that's the reason that I so the first episode I did in the homeless series, I was dealing with macro policy, mostly with yeah. housing. And I'll, I'll preface, I get into like time travel and Elizabethan stuff. So it's not all. It dry. is an episode yeah. of the political orphanage. Yeah, it's, still, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. not it's not me writing a white paper. It's engaging. However, it is me taking a bird's eye view of those policies which are helped or hindered. At, at a top down level from from government institutions, I then interviewed Alan Graham, who is a, a local here in Austin that runs or founded Community First, which I think is great. And the reason that I was fascinated by that is that um, one, it's scalable um, or it's, I should say, replicatable, by, by which I mean, I, I think when you have programs like this, they become less and less tenuous, uh, tenable the higher they get. Yeah, because um, like if if we have eight houses and and we've got. 15 homeless people and we're, we're debating who we're going to put in what house we can talk to all of them when the federal government does it i think it's much more likely that the people that are going to get those eight houses are upper middle class white people that know how to fill out the paperwork yeah uh, i think you need to have local skin in the game and you need to have people so his model i think works for that because you could replicate it on a city by city basis um the other thing that i think it's very useful for is it is dealing with people on a more holistic level so uh what they do is they're working in in syncopation with um, social workers and municipal government to, to get case files and see who would most benefit from this place who might be on the line that that could either be you know, is going to be drinking themselves silly, but it's not causing problems yeah. or might be able to climb out of it versus who is going to cause a problem for the whole community. And they have to make those decisions because there's still a limited amount of resources as there always will be. Um, however, I think the benefit to that kind of thing is I do think um, particularly with addiction and to a great extent with mental health, issue, mental health issues that um, the government can only do so much. Uh, and that's, I am very open to government solutions to try and alleviate homelessness. Again, I think it's such a horrible thing that I'm trying to make ideology second to just the practical implementation of how do we get people out of that. That being said, despite that openness to it, the government can't provide you with community. It can't provide you with relationships. It can't, yeah. it can't give you a sense of belonging. It can give you stuff. It can give you uh, it can give you an apartment. It can give you a key. It can give you food stamps, but it can't like. I can call you Justin when I'm really bummed out and yes. be like, can I come over for whiskey yeah. and talk to you about whatever the thing is? The government can't do that, um, which is why I think that kind of thing they're doing at Community First can. They they are actually facilitating not just the material side of things, but the emotional and communal side of things. And going back to addiction, that seems to me to be a big part of the equation. Uh, 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 here in March will be, hopefully, uh, and we seem to be on a track for it, my brother's second year ceremony in AA. Um, mm -hmm. I will go to, to Dallas for that. Um, I was there for his last year ceremony of one uh, for his one year. And it seemed to me that a big part of that was the fact that they had a community that they were regularly engaging in and relying on and all those different things. And so I, I think that for addiction, that's going to have to be a part of it. And I don't know that the government would ever really be good at facilitating that. And that's part of what I wonder about uh, when we diagnose this problem is how much beyond addiction, how much of this is and I don't want to say a mental thing in in the way that you know would, would assume that I mean that people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or anything like this, but like there are a lot of reasons why relationships break down. There's a lot of reasons why people become uh, uh you know lose their jobs. There's there's a lot of stuff that that is is tied together that I think because this is such an ugly problem and we we can all agree that we need to fix it immediately we tend to kind of go to our hobby horses as 
it, it, like or, or our most unsolvable problems that allow us to not think about it. Yeah. Like if you are more progressive or socialist kind of inclined, it's like, well, it's capitalism. Right. What are you going to do? Yeah. I'm never going to solve that. So that way I don't have to think about. Helping no, we, it. we could totally do it if we just had the Department of Urban Housing do all houses. Exactly. And have the Soviet system. Or if you're a very religious person, it's like, oh, well, this is a crisis of spirituality. Yeah. These are this is the lost, the people who have turned their eyes from God. And and, and that is, you know, the, the, the plight of, of the people or in a moral society has led them to this point. Uh, you know, and, and I think that that's it's really bad because I I think this is obviously our own failing like, and, and we are, we are uh, uh, trying to fix it. That being said, aside from doing a a podcast where I just ask more questions, I don't have the solution, but I don't know. I don't know if there is one. There is none. I should say there is no one single solution. There's, there's, um, I, I, I think for that reason, there's kind of two things that we can do on a broad level, just from a mindset perspective that would, would assist in this. The, the first one is, um, that, I, there are, I, I think there's more agreement on this than we would otherwise think. And the reason I say that is I don't know anybody, I don't think who, if you went, um, Hey, we want to charge you 1% more in taxes. And if we do that, we can, we can cut homelessness in half. If, if that were the deal. Yeah. My, my problem with so many programs like that is not the goal that you're trying to do, which I share. It's that I don't think you're going to pull it off. I think you're yes. going to throw my money in the bushes. And, but, but most people, and I know a lot of conservatives, if you talk to them and you're like, if you knew it would work, if you, it, would you pay 2% higher taxes to get rid of like, yes, of course people would. Right. Yeah. I think that people like the, the argument is not so much about whether we have a moral imperative or the government has a, an imperative to alleviate homelessness, but rather the effectiveness the government has in it. So there is some overlap there. Um, the, the next thing I would add is uh, because there is no silver bullet to this, there's no single solution to this. I don't I don't think there really can be uh, a healthier way to approach this, I think, is first to just identify malpractices which are currently making it worse that we could get rid of that would alleviate it. And there are lots of examples of that. Um, there, there are ways that we are um, exacerbating this problem that we could at least go, okay, let's actively stop doing this thing that's harmful. And, yeah. and an example of that is um, arresting homeless people for, for being homeless. And, and that sounds crazy, but like an example uh, if, if you're loitering, yeah. Um, if you are, uh, you're camping where you're not allowed to camp, um, what are you going to do? You're, you're going to get the, the police are going to come tell you to move around, uh, move along. A lot of the time they will issue uh, a ticket to you. Um, well, the person's not going to go to court over no. that. So now they've got a bench warrant out for their arrest. So when, if they do ever by some luck manage to get, uh, an apartment or <clears throat> excuse me, or a job, they're not going to get it now. So like, that's a practice where we need to come up with something better. Like it, and it might be, it might be driving them across town, but whatever, in any of it, the actual criminalization of it is going to be counterproductive. Right. Um, I would add to that part of the reason that I, um, harp on kind of boring stuff like zoning regulation so much is that does have a demonstrable effect on making housing more expensive. And there is a corollary between the, the more, housing costs and the more people aren't able to achieve that. And uh, one of the ways that you, you, we quit making that problem of our own is to get rid of um, zoning laws that drive up the prices of things, which are myriad and rife throughout the United States. And there, there's a lot of nimbyism. There's a lot of, I want to try and make my 
my house worth more by minimum lot sizes and things like that. Those are things that we could scale back and would have an effect on the people that are on the line. Yeah. I mean, you know, Oakland was, was a situation that I paid a lot of attention to because we, when I lived there, uh, all the new buildings that were going up were luxury apartments. Yeah. And part of it was because there was a very onerous cost per unit Mm -hmm. from the city. Right. So it's like there was not an effective business model no. for mid-market in apartments. Ca- like it was all like $250,000 a month and up. Yeah. Like, and these things were dorm rooms. Like they right. were tiny. That Yeah. That's ca- California's kind of leading the charge on bad zoning laws, in my opinion. Like there's, there's lots of, again, any, t- so uh, Zillow did a study um, a couple of years ago using their massive real estate database. And they found that whenever the, the the average rent of a city exceeds 23% of medium income, you're going to start seeing a sharp increase in homelessness. And if it hits like 39%, it's astronomic, right? Gotcha. So it, when rent is too high, there are more homeless people. And yes. This is a fairly demonstrable effect, right? Um, some of the things that California does specifically that that uh, make that happen, I mean, this is really basic economics. The, the, when you have a bigger supply, then demand yep. uh, decreases and stuff costs less. So if you have more houses... Houses cost less. If you have more rooms in apartment buildings, the apartments cost less. Um, California has won a, a, a property system where um, whenever you get a house in California, the property tax you you, you uh, pay is locked in at the time of purchase. And, okay. and, it, and it only increases by a, a minuscule amount every year. So like if, if we're both living in, I don't know, Orange County and I buy a house in 1990 mm-hmm. at 3%. Um, uh, property tax rates and you come in in 2020 and you're paying 15%, I get to keep my 3%. You get to keep your 15%. Yeah. The cities have figured out this is not a good way to make income because they can't raise it on anybody. And when they do, there's such a gap that and no politician is going to run on we're raising your property right. taxes. No politician wants to do this. So what they end up doing is the cities go, well, we do know that we make lots of money off of sales taxes. So let's yeah. not even bother zoning houses anymore. Let's just zone a bunch of used car dealerships and commercial areas because that's going to give us the turnover we need for income. So they end up literally zoning less housing, which makes housing more expensive. And then when you get into the the municipal level itself, like Oakland's a good example of this. I don't know how their their rent control is, but um, rent control laws, which are presupposed on the idea of we're going to keep evil landlords from jacking up prices on you and me. What inevitably happens with that is they go, okay, if you're going to build a place um, and it has affordable housing in it, it can't exceed X price. And so landlords go, oh, okay, I just won't ever build those then. I'll build, I'll build luxury apartments because I would rather make 20% on profit than 3% on profit. And uh, when you, when you start making these restrictions, New York is a really good example of this, of, we're trying to help people not pay too much in rent, but we end up making it no longer worthwhile to build apartments or convert apartments or have affordable housing as opposed to luxury housing. You end up just not building any. And that means the supply is restricted, which means that you either have people that are homeless or leave the city or you raise prices, which a lot of the time are capped. Well, I'm glad we so solved get homelessness. Rid of, get rid of that stuff. And you do. Yeah. At that point, you I, I think you you could see a demonstrable decrease in homelessness for those people that are on the line. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people that are going to get back up on their feet. They can't have a job. Something bad happens to them. They Their, their car is a flat. They get a divorce. They have a medical problem. Something happens, right? And they can't get on their feet again. Those folks have an on-ramp. They can get back in, into the economy. They can get back into the system. And then for the people that are like 
truly non-functional, like we should have dedicated chronic homeless housing. And that, that should be something that cities prioritize. And I think it's actually a pretty good investment. And um, for, for Democrats that are listening to this, you guys should absolutely hire me to talk to conservatives because you're horrible at it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm boggled every time I talk to you. Conservative like, whisperer, Andrew Heaton like, for you, hire. You, you guys go talk to the Republicans. And you're like, hey, quit being evil for a minute. And like, I think we all acknowledge capitalism's ruining the planet, making people. And I'm like, I come in and I'm like, hey, do you guys want to save taxpayers money? You should build chronic homeless housing. It's going to be cheaper than ER bills and prisons. Yeah. Uh, there you go. We're all fiscal conservatives. When you, start, right? when you start with the like, well, look, we're all going to have to sacrifice. You, the Republican, are going to have to sacrifice looking at those in the downtrodden uh, uh, poor, uh, right. which obviously derives you tremendous pleasure. Yes. Uh, exactly. uh, and, and I'll have to sacrifice another percentage in taxes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, uh, please, everybody listen to both episodes of The Political Orphanage, uh, where Heaton goes into much more detail on this. Thank you, as always, sir. A pleasure. Thank you. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you want to thank Andrew Heaton for being on here and talking about homelessness, you can do so. px3guest.com. Our email for any thoughts you have on the show is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live, where we go live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And of course, our newsletter can be found at px3newsletter.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy at px3podcast.com and get your politics merch at politicsmerch.com. Support me with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. My Venmo is justin-young-20. A cash app is px3cash. And you can send anything physical in the mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Idris Arslandian, DJ Katie Mack, Neemeister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dakinse, Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, 70s TV salesman. Or spy. D, really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison. No mention on the podcast, please. Dot com Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Diana's Scathing Scowls, Double K Ranch, Yield Pinball Shop, John, Snuffy's Off Route 44, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D-Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, The Gen, J-Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name read alongside of theirs, only one place to go. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Hey, everybody. I want you guys to have a really, really, really good weekend. Have a safe weekend. A lot of snow throughout the country. I think by the time that this airs, uh, uh, Texas itself might be uh, in a bit of a freeze. But uh, stay safe. Stay warm. Till next time. This is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Oh.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.